to episode 120 of the Truth Quest podcast, the truth about the Tenth Amendment. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you're on social media and topics such as the Tenth Amendment, court packing, the Biden crime family, Breonna Taylor, or Ruth Bader Ginsburg comes up, please share the topic-specific TruthQuest episode with your debate partner. Episodes are available on a host of platforms including iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, BitChute, Brighteon, and ThinkSpot. If you are listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, please take a moment and scroll down on the podcast page and give it a five-star rating. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest podcast patronage page. All donations will be used to drive awareness of the podcast through Facebook advertising. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com. And finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. Regular listeners of this podcast know that one of my favorite topics is the Constitution. I have published maybe a dozen episodes directly or indirectly related to the subject, and in countless others I reference the document. If we had transcripts of all my podcast episodes and ranked what phrases I utter most often, it would hands down be something about living in a post-constitutional America. I apologize for being repetitive, but here's the thing that I figured out after all these years of paying attention to all the bullshit that goes on in Washington, D.C. That being, if the Constitution was actually applied, if the general government, the federal government, was still in its tiny little sandbox created for it by the Constitution, you know what I'm talking about, a few defined powers delegated to it, the enumerated powers? If that were still the case, our country would be thriving. Instead, we have two corrupt political parties who will drop $100 million on a Senate campaign and close to a billion dollars on a presidential campaign. Now, why would they do that? Two words, power and control. See, the power of the federal government and the control it wields over the American people is exponentially greater than the nation the Founding Fathers handed over to us. The constitutional restraints have been chipped away for over 200 years to the point where the Constitution is, in essence, irrelevant. Hell, the second president, John Adams, was able to get Congress to pass the Alien and Sedition Act. These days, both the executive and legislative branches ignore the Constitution, while the judicial branch simply makes up their own rules as they go, known as precedent. So we get death by a million bad precedents. And most importantly, the individual states never step up and take their rightful place in the constitutional argument. They just take whatever comes out of D.C. They just sit down and shut up like a good subordinate should do. That's not how the country was organized. That's not how the Constitution set things up. And the Tenth Amendment is at the heart of it all. Thomas Jefferson referred to the ideas that became the Tenth Amendment as the foundation of the Constitution. It's just 28 words. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. That means the federal government is only authorized to do those things that have been delegated to it, nothing more. If it ain't delegated, they can't do it. And it's up to we the people, the individual states, to ignore all unconstitutional mandates. You can challenge them in court, or you can completely ignore them and see what the feds are going to do about it. It's known as nullification. Check out episode 23 for more on that topic. The bottom line is the people have most of the power. That's how our country was set up. Isn't that a strange concept to digest in today's educational and political environment? No one ever talks about this. 
The Constitution authorizes the federal government to do about 30 things. Article 1, Section 8 lists most of them, and the other dozen or so are sprinkled throughout the document. We're going to cover those in just a minute. In Federalist 45, the father of the Constitution, James Madison, wrote, quote, The powers delegated to the proposed Constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those that are to remain in state governments are numerous and indefinite. The former will be exercised principally on external objects as war, peace, negotiation, and foreign commerce, with which last the power to taxation will, for the most part, be connected. He goes on to say, The powers reserved to the several states will extend to all the objects which, in the ordinary course of affairs, concern the lives, liberty, and properties of the people in the internal order, improvement, and prosperity of the state. End quote. A phrase that was often used by founders was the general government was, quote, expressly delegated powers, end quote. Or like George Nicholas said, all powers not given are retained. Retained by whom? The people. Now you must understand that it's highly unlikely that the Constitution would have been ratified by legislatures in Massachusetts, South Carolina, New York, New Hampshire, or maybe even Virginia, if there was not an express intention to pass a series of amendments that became known as the Bill of Rights. See, the states wanted assurances of their protected rights. They wanted it in writing. But what is most interesting is what became known as the Tenth Amendment, that was the most concerning to the founding generation. They demanded that such an amendment be passed shortly after the ratification of the Constitution, or they were out. They didn't want anything to do with the Constitution. Why would a sovereign state, a nation unto itself, so basically each of the 13 colonies were considered nations at the time, why would a sovereign state give unlimited powers to the federal centralized government? Well, they wouldn't. They were not going to trade one king for another, all-powerful King George for an all-powerful federal government. In the Virginia ratification documents, there was included the following statement, quote, The people of Virginia declare and make known that the powers granted under the Constitution, being derived from the people, be resumed by them whensoever the same shall be perverted to their injury or suppression. Here's the money quote. Every power not granted thereby remains with them and at their will, end quote. Then they recommended the Bill of Rights Amendments, including some specific language that sounds just like the Tenth Amendment. Their argument was that since the people were sovereign, they can choose to take back the power granted to the feds. Remember, the states created the federal government, and presumably the states can annul it or ignore it. So what is sovereignty exactly? What does it mean? Well, it means final authority. As I mentioned, the king and parliament were sovereign in England. In America, the people are sovereign. The people are sovereign while ceding some limited powers to the feds. In Federalist 39, James Madison wrote, quote, Each state in ratifying the Constitution is considered as a sovereign body, independent of all others, and only to be bound by its own voluntary act. In this relation, then, the new Constitution will, if established, be a federal not a national constitution. Side note, that's why the phrase one nation under God, indivisible, in the Pledge of Allegiance is suspect. I understand the spirit of it, but it's a false statement on its face. Anyways, back to the idea of sovereignty. Never forget that we are not talking about the sovereignty of the state governments necessarily. We are talking about the sovereignty of the people of the states. The people in a given geographic area are sovereign. So that's kind of an appetizer before the main course. 
all this talk about limited power and the feds and the sovereignty of the people of the states. Let's see what exactly was expressly delegated to the feds in the Constitution. As I mentioned a minute ago, the Constitution grants around 30 to 35 powers to the federal government. Most are contained in Article 1, Section 8, and the rest are spread out throughout the document. So let's look at the former. Article 1, Section 8 grants the feds 18 specific powers, including the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, to borrow money on the credit of the United States, to regulate commerce with foreign nations, to establish uniform rules of naturalization, to coin money, to provide for punishment of counterfeiting, to establish post office and post roads, to promote progress in science, to constitute tribunals inferior to the Supreme Court, to define and punish piracy and felonies committed on the high seas, to declare war, to raise and support armies, to provide and maintain a navy, to make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces, to provide for calling forth the militia, to provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia. Then there's the Washington, D.C. Clause, to exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such district, not exceeding 10 miles square. And it goes on. And the 18th is to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers. Then we have a collection of other powers granted to the feds throughout the rest of the Constitution. So you've got Congress may determine the time and choosing of the, the electors, the day of the voting, uh, the removal of the president, discussions about the Supreme Court, trial by jury, declaring punishments of treason. New states may be admitted by the Congress into the Union. There's discussion about how to amend the Constitution, how the House of Representatives can choose their speaker. The Senate shall have the sole power to try impeachment. And holding of elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed by each state by the legislature thereof. Of course, the Democrats are trying to change that now, but that's a moot point. So when you think about it, isn't that remarkable? I mean, that that's it. That's that's all the power the feds are granted in the Constitution. And given that, I mean, how many federal agencies would pass a constitutionality test? Maybe the Defense Department, the Post Office, the State Department, maybe the Treasury Department, the Patent and Trademark Office, the IRS, the federal court system, uh, maybe the Attorney General's Office, what's that, the Justice Department, and maybe an Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. But that means the abolishment or privatization of well-known agencies, such as the Department of Education, the EPA, the Interior Department, the Department of Homeland Security, Health and Human Services, Labor Department, the Federal Reserve, Housing and Urban Development, Energy Department, Small Business Administration, Amtrak, USDA, FHA, Labor Relations Administrations, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. I mean, I could literally go on for 20 minutes reciting the list of unconstitutional federal agencies. What others can you think of? In my book, Critical Thinking, I filled four full pages with a list of federal agencies that do not meet the constitutionality test. So what can't the states do? Article 1, Section 10 has restrictions. Basically, no treaties with foreign countries, no coining of money, bill of attainer is prohibited, which is just a fancy 19th century term for laws that pronounce a person guilty of a crime and then imposing a punishment without a trial. It also prohibits ex post facto laws or laws that are retroactively changed, and states can't build an army in peacetime. That's about it. 
So keep in mind, there are only three federal crimes mentioned in the Constitution. Treason, offenses against the laws of nations, and felonies on the high seas, which calls into question the thousands of federal laws that we are subject to. Why is that? They're all unconstitutional. As I already reviewed, if you read the words of the founders as they either argued for the ratification of the Constitution or were extolling its virtues after its ratification, it is clear that the people of the states were the most powerful party of the Constitution in the eyes of the founding generation. People like John Marshall explained that the states had exclusive control over the militia, land title, personal property, and contract law. Alexander White, a Virginia delegate to its ratification convention and among Virginia's first delegation to Congress, mentioned a series of things that he claimed were obviously outside the scope of Congress, including the rights of conscience, religious liberty, the right to bear arms for defense or killing game, hunting and fishing rights, dealing with deceased persons and dispersing their titles to land and goods, the regulation of contracts in the individual states, the freedom of speech and the press. All of this is before the Bill of Rights. Alexander Hamilton said the Necessary and Proper Clause only applied to the stuff mentioned right before it. This is before the Bill of Rights, too. Of course, Hamilton flip-flopped after ratification and advocated for big government. But before his flip-flop, he specifically cited things such as land transfers, inheritance, civil justice, criminal law, domestic relations, i.e. marriage, agriculture, i.e. the prohibition of plants like marijuana or bailouts for farmers, and freedom of the press. All of those were under the purview of the people of the states, not the feds. In the ratifying convention in Vermont, Nathaniel Chipman, a United States senator from Vermont and chief justice of the Vermont Supreme Court, told colleagues that the states would, quote, retain as sovereign, end quote. He lists the powers held and retained by the people of Vermont under the Constitution, including property rights, civil justice, punishment for moral code violations, violations of private personal property, personal security, and disturbing the peace of society. Other founders mentioned things that the federal government cannot do under the Constitution, including training the militia, nor appointing its officers. They cannot enact laws for the inspection of produce, i.e. FDA, USDA. They're not constitutional. They cannot interfere with the opening of rivers and canals, the making and regulation of roads except post roads, as indicated in Article 1, Section 8. They have no power to get involved in infrastructure, bridges, ferries, building lighthouses, public wharves, markets, and other public buildings. They cannot get involved in establishing state seminaries of learning, libraries, literary, religious, trading, or manufacturing societies. They cannot erect or regulate the police in cities, towns, and boroughs i.e., calls from D.C. for police reform, go screw yourself. That's a local issue. And finally, they cannot create new state offices, execute state laws, i.e., when the DOJ comes in and enforces state laws, that's unconstitutional. They must not get involved with anything to do with internal affairs of a state. So basically, if you categorize all the things I just rattled off, there are, I don't know, nine or ten categories of things that are enumerated to the states. One of them being basically the militia, training and appointing its officers. One note about the idea of state militias. Uh, yes, as prescribed in Article 1, Section 8, one of the reasons they are there is to call, be called up by the feds as needed for insurrection and re repel invasion. But, but its other purpose is to be a counterweight to national military force and protect states from overreaching federal power. 
Another category that all those things fall into is just local government. Then you can think about regulation of private property. That's another category. Of course, control over domestic and family affairs, marriage, divorce, are mentioned over and over again by the founders as a state power. Criminal laws, except for the three specified prescribed to the feds. All civil laws, tort, property disputes, religion and education, social services. Churches, families, and local communities were the social services of the founders' day. And finally, control over agriculture. Obviously, the United States was heavily uh, into agriculture at the time of the founding. So all of those powers were left to the local government. When it comes down to it, the Tenth Amendment was a tool to minimize centralized government and maximize decentralization. Two things our overlords in D.C. want nothing to do with that would minimize their power. The founders, Thomas Jefferson in particular, thought the United States was too large to be run by a central government. That was back in the day when I think the population was something like 3 million. We have 330 million people now. Having a single point of failure is always a bad idea. You want to have redundancies or fail-safes. You would rather have 50 states than one. Does it make sense to have 200 plus people making decisions for 330 million? Maybe you can argue honestly that yes, that is the constitutional slash democratic republic system of government. Fair enough. But what about five judges? What, what about unelected bureaucrats? See how things have gotten out of hand? What do you get from centralization? You get fewer choices, fewer opportunity for experiment. Decentralization means the opposite. More choices, more experimentation. Think about your average grocery store. How many types of toilet paper, deodorant, cereal, and beer is available to you? Now consider what a grocery store looked like in the Soviet Union, or in Venezuela before it collapsed, or even Cuba today. Why should we be stuck with one-size-fits-all? Abortion, guns, drugs, speed limit, the drinking age, the retirement age, the retirement program are all thrown into. What about Obamacare and other socialized medical schemes? All that means more centralized power and control. The Tenth Amendment was supposed to promote decentralization. So what's the problem? We, the people, have ceded our power, our sovereignty, to D.C., and they have run with it. America is off its constitutional rails. The states refuse to fight back because, believe it or not, on average, 30% of every state's annual budget comes from D.C. You don't want to bite the hand that feeds you. As I've stated in other episodes, I believe the only thing that can save the country from itself is secession. One or two states will need to walk away, walk away from the corruption, the out-of-control spending, the pandering, the debt, and the foreign entanglements. Check out episodes 87 and 88, The Truth About Secession, parts 1 and 2, to hear my arguments. So let's tie a bow on this episode and talk a little bit about how to read the Constitution. In order to determine what the Constitution means, you must look at it, what it meant when it was ratified, what the people who wrote, negotiated, argued over it meant. You don't evaluate the constitutionality of a law by what you think the Constitution means today, or what it should mean. And that includes the perverted understanding of the Constitution caused by hundreds of bullshit Supreme Court opinions. The Constitution is not hard to understand. It's not written in a foreign language. There are plenty of writings and transcripts of debates between the founders to learn what they meant by the words in the Constitution. And you might actually have to look in an 18th century dictionary in order to truly understand what is meant. 
And when it comes to the Tenth Amendment, its message is very clear. 28 words. The people of the states hold the most power in the country because the powers delegated to the feds is very limited. All else is retained by the people. Unfortunately, we have ceded both our power and our sovereignty to a bunch of corruptocrats in D.C. Just look at how the Democrats have behaved during Trump's first term when it became apparent that they had lost some power. Look at how they have threatened to undo long-standing traditions and constitutionally mandated provisions such as the Electoral College, filibuster, packing the Supreme Court, welfare and voting rights for illegal immigrants. I mean, do you really think they would go through all that trouble if their power was truly limited to the 30 or 35 things we discussed earlier? And that's the truth about the Tenth Amendment. If you're looking for an easy-to-read reference guide to have on your desk or bookshelf that covers many of the topics tackled here on the TruthQuest podcast, grab a copy of my book, Critical Thinking, spelled with a P like Peter. The subtitle is The Lost Art of Critical Thinking and Common Sense in Politics and Public Policy. It's available at Amazon and anywhere books are sold. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for more information. And as always, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. Thank you.